Hello, and welcome to Business Brew, the first ever in our new series of podcasts from Business IQ, the business side of the Northern Echo. We're going to be talking regularly to key people, business leaders across the region. What makes them tick? What's their thinking? What are their principles? What's driving their companies forward? It's available on all the usual podcast platforms, and it'll also there'll be a video version of it. Uh, on our own YouTube channel. Uh, follow us on all the usual social media and we'll hopefully catch up soon. I'm very pleased to say that the first guest for the very first business brew is Tees Valley Mayor Ben Houchin. Let's see what he's got to say to, for himself. Good Hi, morning, Ben. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, yeah. Listen, thanks for your time for this. It's uh, it was important to get things off to uh, to a strong start. So why not go straight to the top and <laughs> talk to the mayor? Um, you your preferred guest wasn't available, though. <laughs> it's a long list, mate. But no, no, not at all. Uh, as I say, it's important for us to get a view across the whole region of how businesses are performing, what the key points are. But also, as you know about me, uh, I like to talk about the people behind the businesses as well. And that's why we've got you on here today. Um, let's start with the simplest of questions. How are you doing? How is Ben Houchin coping with it all at the moment? Are you feeling fit and well, rearing for battle? Yeah, yeah, I feel pretty good. Things are going well. People ask me that question a lot over the last few months, actually, but things are just kind of ticking along. Lots of stuff in the background that's kind of waiting to waiting to pop. So always frustrated that we're not six months down the line. It's a job that I've discovered that um, you're always wishing your life away. You always wish it was six months' time because you can kind of see what's coming but it's not here today. So that, there's a lot of that because, as you'll know, Mike, the types of in, um, projects and investors that we're working with, the stuff that we're doing within the region, a lot of it has quite a long lead time because it's of a scale and nature that, unfortunately, it can't just all be delivered in a few days or a week. So, yeah, other than the frustration of, like I say, wishing my life away, things are things are pretty good. I can't complain and uh, let's hope they stay that way. Yeah, good. Absolutely. Um, let's take you back, Ben. I'm interested in your, your sort of early background. What was... What was family life like for for the young Ben Houchin? Good good background, and and also that obviously led to the trained solicitor and uh, working with BLK and people like that. What what was your background? What what, what built Ben Houchin? Um, I think it was a fairly typical background. I mean, I grew up in Ingleby Barwick, so my parents are one of the first hundred hundred and fifty houses that were built in Ingleby back in the late seventies, very early eighties. Um, went to Winstone Primary, the only school never mind primary school but the only school on Ingleby at the time right. ended up going to Conyers um where my older sister um was already there um went to university again when I was growing up in family life it was just kind of expected and the way that it was communicated to me as parents it was like well you're going to go and do A levels and you're going to go to university so they kind of set an expectation that that was just the natural thing that was done despite my sister who's um a few years older than me being the first person in our whole family to ever have gone to university. So it wasn't as if it was a common thing more broadly in the family. Um, didn't go far, though. Went to Northumbria University in Newcastle, where I studied law. Ended up going there because um, they did it at the time. I think they still do it, a four-year integrated law degree. So for anybody that's not aware, if you do a law degree, it's usually a three-year undergraduate degree, and then you do a postgrad degree, whether you want to be a barrister or a solicitor. Um, and that's quite expensive. When I was doing it, it was about £12,000 just for the year to do the postgrad wow. degree. Whereas with Northumbria, they integrated it all into a single degree. So it could be kind of funded through your normal kind of student loans undergrad process. 
and it was an extra seven hundred pounds a year, so we were saving like nine, ten thousand pounds or whatever it was. Right. Otherwise, would never have been able to do it. Um, wow. And then came home, came back to Stockton, got a training contract with Archers Law, um, got qualified, and then, as we say, the rest is history. I think. So what what did that do for you though? Did that make you sort of determined to make something of yourself when you got that sort of that sort of background that you got the the tools are all there in the box for you? Did you think I, I, I've got to make something of this, or were you like a lot of young people just not quite sure what the the end result was going to be? No, again, I think given the the support and kind of uh, direction I'd been given by my parents, there was always this idea that kind of going into the law was was the thing I was going to do. Um, and that wasn't driven by them, right? It was something that I, I kind of got interested in in secondary school. But if I'm frank, I mean, I'd never go back to being a lawyer. I mean, good luck to anybody that is. It just doesn't fit me properly being a, a lawyer in private practice. Um, yeah. But it stood me in good stead. I mean, the skills you get from yeah. a law degree and working in the law is 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 pretty important when it comes to being a politician, whether you're dealing with kind of process, procedures, regulations, laws. So that's always been helpful. But I don't know. I don't know really where it comes from because there's always been kind of a particular drive within me to want to kind of achieve and succeed. Um, my parents, my family generally have never been that interested in politics, you know, so it's not as if my parents were involved in politics, right. didn't talk about politics at home. Nobody talked about kind of conservatives or the Labour Party or anything really. So it wasn't pro one or anti the other, but it was always something from a very early age, from probably about the age of 10 or 11 that really, really interested me. So there was always in the back of my mind, at some point when I grew up, I was going to, you know, dip my toe into politics. But again, coming from a pretty kind of decent, normal family, you know, as you probably had in your household, as most households do, nobody likes politicians, nobody trusts a politician, no, no politicians ever had a real job. And that was something yeah, that's yeah. So even though I knew I'd be interested in politics, it was always in my mind that I needed to go and get some worldly experience and go and get a real job for a period of time before getting involved and and to be fair getting involved in politics happened much sooner than I expected right I mean I wasn't supposed to win in 2017 and so yeah kind of all happened by accident and certainly years ahead of where I thought I'd be getting involved but you know that's life and you've got to just deal with what's put in front of you yeah and it's, I mean it's a daft old question for someone like you but do you still get that drive you still get up and you think yeah I really want to do something with this and it must after a while there must be some sort of a balance between I mean, you get a lot of stick, you get a lot of social media stick, a lot of people just instantly politically are sort of set against you. Does that matter? Do you care? Um, well, I, yeah, absolutely. still have the drive. If I didn't have the drive, I wouldn't be doing it, right? If I didn't have the drive, I wouldn't be standing for re-election again in May. But, um, you know, what I find is the more successful you are, the more people want to kind of tear you down, particularly in politics with political opponents. Um and I remember a, a phrase, I think Denzel Washington gave it in a speech somewhere where he talks about, you know, if, if if the devil's leaving you alone, then you're probably doing something wrong. But if he's coming for you, then yeah, yeah. doing something right. And I think if you look at my journey since 2017, you know, I was largely ignored for a few years by my political opponents. You know, he accidentally got elected. He's a young lad. He doesn't know what he's yeah, doing. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. You know, the people of Teesside made a mistake. They'll come and vote for us again next time. But then we ended up doing what we said we would do and got re-elected. Um, you know, you look at things like Teesworks, you know, for four or five years, it was, he's promised all of this, nothing's going to happen, it's not going to do this, he's not going to do that, where are the jobs? You know, they're not saying that anymore, right? And so, you know, the political opponents become a lot more vicious when when you do actually say what you, 
you know you said you were going to do because it makes it much more difficult for them to to go after you. So to some extent, I thrive off it, and I think if you've got to be in politics. You've got to. You know, the, the louder your political opponents are, the more you're clearly doing something right, um, and so that has to feed you. And ultimately, it feeds me because. I'm born and raised here, Mike. Like, I'm not going anywhere. I don't plan on moving away ever. You know, certainly my, I don't think Rachel, my wife, would ever let me move away, <laughs> even if I wanted to. So, you know, like I say, my family's been here for generations. And the stuff that we're doing, I genuinely believe, will make a generational difference to our local area. You know, that has a personal impact on me, my family, you know, my nephews, uh, you know, you know, for, for the Houching family for years to come, but my community, right, and the region. And there's a sense within me that there's a there's something that I want to be able to give back because I want to look back in years to come and know that I played a small part in in making the area better and and leaving a mark on the in the area that gave me so much because I wouldn't be sat here today I wouldn't be the person I am if it wasn't for for the the local area and the opportunities it's given me let's um talking about the, the man you are let's mention Rachel what's your what's your take on her role in all this I mean, it's, they, they talk about the power behind the throne and the influence and all that sort of thing. What's your take on, on the Rachel side of the Houchin story? I mean, it's something we've talked about quite a lot. Um, I think being in politics and having a relationship is very difficult if you're in... So I mean, say I was in politics and I hadn't met Rachel. It would be a, I think it would be very different... Uh, to meet somebody new in politics. I think politics is such a strange world. Um, The working hours are are ridiculous, very odd. The whole way that people interact with you is is unique because you're an elected representative and people feel like they have a level of ownership over you that they wouldn't if you were in another job. And that's fine, right? I know what I'm getting myself into. and, And I kind of enjoy a lot of that. I like the openness. I like the frankness. I like that some people are you know, say things to me that they would never dream of saying to somebody else because they feel like they can, right? And I like that kind of open honesty. I think what I'm very fortunate about is that, you know, I've known Rachel, we've known each other since we were kids, right? We went to school together. You know, I've known Rachel since I was 14. And right. She knew me long before I was a politician. She knew me when I was at, uni- you know, university at school, you know, when I was a solicitor. And we, we've been together for, God, oh, we've been together 16 years now. Um and so she's been on that journey with me. And so she's actually grown into it um, as much as I have, really. And, and she's coped with it incredibly well. And I'm not just saying this because you're recording it and she might see it. But, you know, I, <laughs> I could not do this job if it, was, if it wasn't for the support that Rachel gives me. I mean, this what people don't see is just how all-encompassing this job is if you do it properly. And for Rachel to be as supportive as she is to, um, you know, make a lot of sacrifices that she has made over years, to be yeah. able to support me in what I do and do it in a way that um, is completely unresentful, um, is completely loving and supportive. I mean, like I said, I would not be sat here today if I didn't have somebody like Rachel because I don't think you can do it alone and you can't do it well alone, but you also can't do it with somebody who isn't completely all in with you. So, yeah, I owe everything to Rachel and, and always will, but um, that also makes me the person I am and, and it adds a lot of value and it helps me do what I do. So... Yeah, I think um, yeah. I couldn't say sure. many more positive things about Rachel, to be honest. Because when you uh, when you get home, whatever time you do get home at night, when you get the kettle on, you've got a cuppa and you sit down with someone like that and you can talk things over, that just makes a world of difference, doesn't it? Rather than maybe if you've been in London or somewhere like that and you just go back to some sort of quiet hotel room. If you've got someone like that that you can talk to and understands what makes Ben Houch and tick and what he's thinking, what he's going through, 
that makes a world of difference, doesn't it? It does, and and there's always a, a balance as well because the job is so intense uh, and it's all-consuming. So it's not just kind of working hours. It's from the second you wake up to the second you go to sleep at night. It, it, it's a job that can consume you, and it can then turn you into that person that everybody hates, which is kind of that p- political bubble-type person who can't see the wood for the trees. Yeah. And again, one of the benefits of, of Rachel is that, you know, Rachel is you know, much more intelligent than I, so understand what's going on. She gets involved. But she's also not really that interested in politics. Like, she's not a political animal. I mean, yeah. like, I didn't meet her through politics. I met her at school. And yeah. so when I do go home after a long day and it has been stressful or it's been quite intense or we've been doing whatever we've been doing, you know, sitting down and her saying she wants to watch Coronation Street and, you know, she wants to talk about, you know, what's been going on in her day and what's happening. Yeah. With her and normal, it sounds ridiculous, but like normal things. Yeah. It's it's very grounding. It's very balancing. And, and she makes sure that um, I never get ahead of myself and my head never gets too big. And she, you know, helps me realize that the world is a much bigger place than politics. And, and that's a really healthy thing. And again, that's something I wouldn't have if she didn't give me that perspective. That's talking about the, I meant to mention this earlier on, the opposition side of things. It was a really simple question. Why didn't you just stay off Twitter? That side of you that where somebody, I mean, I get it to a very tiny extent as a journalist. Sometimes people pop on and say, what a load of rubbish, I don't know what you're talking about, nonsense. But it seems to be something in your makeup that you can't just not, I mean, your comms guys must be turning somersaults sometimes. Because you just say, look, just don't say anything. Just carry on with your work and let them have their conversation. But there's something in you, isn't there, that, just can't let someone say something that you you don't like. Um, I mean, the the, the 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 social media strategy is a really interesting one, Mike. So, firstly, let me just put this out as a disclaimer: nobody does my social media for me. It's it's kind of like a it seems to be like a thing that goes around that people just assume that I've got this kind of comms team, and it's certainly something perpetuated by my opponents. They think that there's some sort of machine. I can guarantee you the only person that does anything on my social media is me and it's through this phone. Um, and that, that, that I think comes with a major positive in that it's, it becomes genuinely authentic. You know, you can tell, and I can certainly tell, when there is a media person or a corporate person who's posting on behalf of somebody else, particularly when you know that person, you've seen them in videos, you've seen them on a stage, you know, you've seen them in, in kind of real life because you, people can smell BS, they can smell authenticity, and so they can see that it's not authentic. And being authentic as a politician, sadly, not enough of us are. And so when you are authentic and you say it as it is, that's a very powerful thing to people. And it's something, in my personality, I'm a very straightforward person. So I like to think that when people ask me a question, I answer it. People might not like the answer, but I'll give you an answer, which, again, is a rare thing in politics. You know, oh, the politicians never answer the question. I get the opposite problem, which is when I answer the question, people don't like the answer. And it's like, well, look, that's fine, but, you know, you can take it or leave it. I think the next stage is, you talk about Twitter. You know, Twitter for me is a communications tool. You know, I don't I don't interact. If you look, actually, very rarely, unless I've had a really bad day and somebody's really irritated me and I just can't help but pick up my phone or react to something, which, to be fair, is pretty rare, but it does happen, you'll see that I never interact with anybody on Twitter because Twitter is an absolute cesspit. It's horrible. Um, yeah. It's the worst form of social media. I mean, all social media, actually, I don't think is good for people, but uh, is the worst form of social media. And so you'll see that when I go on Twitter, it's it's a projection tool. So we put, we're putting out, communi- I put out communications. You know, we'll post what we're doing. We'll post videos. But you'll see I'll never interact with people, like I say, 
there might be exceptions, but extremely rare, rarely never interact with Twitter because again, it is just a horrible, horrible place. The other thing I don't, the other reason I don't do it is all of the people that really dislike me for my politics get in completely incensed and seem to spend all of their days on Twitter replying or just putting nonsense out into the ether. And I think, well, good on you because I'm not on there. I'm not listening to it. You waste your time. You waste your hours posting. Uh, and I'll get on and do the job, right? You know, and in a couple of months' time, I'll be delivering stuff that actually matters to people. And you'll have sent a thousand tweets that nobody cares about. The more important social media are the other ones. You know, LinkedIn, surprisingly, I think a lot of people would say for politics can be very powerful. And yeah. we've harnessed over the last five or six years um, to great effect. And people I know come up to me and say that they haven't seen anything I've said on Twitter, sometimes not even on Facebook. But, you know, lots of people do come up and say, I'll follow you on LinkedIn. I see what's going on. It's really great what's happening. That's been a really positive surprise. That's a very different place. But again, the biggest one for us is is Facebook. You know, people underestimate it. But, you know, the voting demographic is on Facebook. We've spent a lot of time and effort um, cultivating a following, making sure that anybody in the Teesside area uh, that wants to follow me, uh, that wants to know what's going on in the area, does follow me. And, you know, now we're at a place where my Facebook page, on average, reaches somewhere between 750,000 and a million people a month, um, of which wow. more than 90% of those people are are from the Teesside area. Um, obviously, when it goes over 750,000, that's a slightly further reach, because there must be something I've put on there that is of kind of larger region or national significance but you know we're reaching the vast majority of people across teesside every month now on just on facebook and that that again is a very powerful thing it allows you to communicate directly with the public rather than through dare i say it the media and press that you know digest and then pub publish um statements and articles in a very specific way um, it allows you to just kind of cut through all of that and have a direct conversation with the public and, and facebook by far is the most powerful tool that we use. And again, go home in a night, Coronation Street on the TV. It's not probably fair to say Rachel does sometimes get irritated, but while that's on, I'm sat on my phone and I'm where I possibly can reply to comments to people because, again, just replying to people, you know, social yeah. media comments are the new emails. People expect politicians to respond to a comment in the same way that they send an email. And, you know, it's a very powerful thing when you do reply to a comment because people think you are available. And I am, I make myself available and it's hard, but. Like I say, I think it's worthwhile when it comes to people seeing you as open, supportive, available, trying your hardest and wanting to engage with the public who ultimately I'm there to serve. Okay, interesting. I appreciate your, uh, your carefully worded view there of what the press does to uh, to political statements. <laughs> we, we try and stay at that middle ground, but it's, uh, yeah, that, that's part of our job, I suppose. Um, Nobody mentioned the Northern Echo there, Mike. I don't know, is that a... <laughs> <laughs> I I it's interesting. <laughs> I see my job as being, I, I promote the region as you do. And, you know, there are plenty of people in the media and quite right too, who will call to question certain situations and say, what the heck is going on here? That just seems completely wrong. I think my side of it is more to amplify the business voice. So that's, you know, that's my general approach. I wanted to hear what do you think about the business region? And then I'll tell a lot of people what you think. That's a fairly straightforward mission. Um, Lord Ben Houchen, how does that feel? Let's see. It still seems a strange thing to me, um, just because you know, you, I, I know you relatively well. We've met quite a few times now, and you know we can have sort of chats. But then now suddenly you're a lord. Is that a, is there 
A good thing is that's that's like a a straightforward question. Good thing or bad thing? Deciding to be a accept being a lord. I mean, I, I, I my ego is not big enough to think that when that was offered that I could reject it, and at some point in the future it might be offered again. Right? I mean, if anybody came to you with with such a an offer, which I think is a great honor of the work that not the work that I've just done, but that we've done as a team and what, what is happening in the region. It's 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 something that I wouldn't be so egotistical to think that I could turn down and something better would come along in the future. So there's an element of that, that, you know, how do you reject something like that? Um, I do think it is bigger than me. I mean, you know, that comes forward because of the work that we've done across Teesside. So I also feel um, very humble and also very um, aware that I'm somebody who has been given something um, that is very precious and prestigious, but actually it's much greater than me. Like I say, there are lots of people in my organization. Uh, there's lots of people I work with on a day-to-day basis that have done incredible things that have led us to where we are, but it just so happens that I'm kind of the figurehead of that organization. And so it's an awkward thing as a politician anyway to do where you've got such a good team. You know, it's always my face on the photo or in the video or cutting a ribbon or whatever it might be. Um but being aware that it's, you know, you can't do this again. I talk about Rachel. I can't do this job without the fantastic team that I've got. And there is a very unique set of people who are equally as passionate and want to see things get done in the region than I do. So there's that element to it. But also, I think, politically, it's a very positive thing in that it gives me an extra string to my bow, right? It allows us to be able to continue to deliver what we do. I can continue to pressure government for more money, for more projects. But it also gives me a voice in Parliament where if I need to, I can go down to Parliament, I can stand there, and I can make sure that the Teesside voice is heard directly in Parliament. Um, And I think there are some MPs that do that. I think there are some MPs that definitely don't do that. But the benefit of this is now I no longer have to rely on them to do it. I can do it myself. So it's. I think it's another thing that will definitely benefit the region uh, because I'll be using it to benefit the region, and that's my priority. But it still, I mean, the title and the name and all that kind of stuff definitely feels very awkward. You know, I am just Ben... I prefer the title of mayor than I do of lord. Um, but I do think having that as a role can be a very powerful thing if used properly. So, yeah, lots of different reasons why I thought it was the it was um, why I accepted it. Um, but yeah, equally to you, Mike, it, it does still ring and sound very strange when people say it. Yeah, um, have we had the maiden? Forgive me for not knowing this. Have we had the maiden speech yet? Have you spoken there yet? No, uh, maiden speech is on the eighth of November. So very, very soon. Um, so the, the, the uh, state opening of Parliament by the King, uh, which will be his first, obviously, as, as King, um, is on the 7th. Um, and so my maiden speech will be the day after. They have a series of debates in Parliament about the King's speech. And on the 8th um, of November, one of the debates is about devolution. So I thought, again, it, again, it's appropriate for me to use my maiden speech to talk about devolution, to talk about what we're doing as a region, the benefits that devolution can bring, and also what more we, I think, need um, as a region to be able to make even more progress, more autonomy, more money, you know, being able to make more decisions locally away from the centre, you know, giving you a little bit of a sneak peek in the type of thing that will be in the maiden speech. But that, that that's, um, again, that's why I would use that platform. I mean, I'm not going to yeah. use that platform for myself because I don't need it. I mean, the mayoral platform is much bigger than the, the, the House of Lords platform. So, yeah, so a bit of an exclusive there, Mike. Um, it'll be on the 8th. Day after the King's speech, um, and um, any pointers? Let me know. I haven't written <laughs> yeah, yeah. about what I might say. Yeah, so, for, um, forward the speech to me, and I'll have a little. Uh, I'll have a little look through. Well, for the, thing is, 
as you know, Mike, I don't I don't write speeches. Often I don't write anything, um, and I just talk. Um, and worst case scenario, if I do feel like I need to have something um, just in case, I tend to write kind of five or six bullet points, literally with two or three words each bullet point, just as a prompt. So um, I just need to get straight in my head the messages that I want to give, what I want to say, what I want to get on record. And, and so unfortunately, there won't be anything to forward, Mike. You'll have to, you'll have to listen in. We'll be tuning in. Um, again, one of those sort of slightly corny questions, we sort of start to wind down a little bit. Do you ever relax? What do you do to, to wind down? We've had the Coronation Street bit, which is a, a nice touch, but do you are you a walker? Are you going out for meals? Is it cinema or what's your thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't really relax on Coronation Street because, like I say, I tend to work and it's quite a good excuse. <laughs> Rachel watches it and I can sit with her on the sofa and, like I say, I can be on social media and doing work. Um, I, don't, I would have told you about six months, maybe a year ago, I would have said there isn't anything because... I mean, also, it's not really a job. I mean, it's it's one of those things, right? I'd be doing this for free if, like, I wasn't in this role. Do you know what I mean? It's like a it's like a hobby. It's like a passion of mine. So, it's not the same as having a job where you feel like you need to escape from it. So, that would have been an answer I would have said a year ago. I still think that is the answer. But what I would also say is, uh, I've been a strangely a very passionate American football fan for quite a long time, and me and my brother get quite heavily involved in American football now. Just went to the US a couple of weeks ago, went to my first yeah. NFL game. We went to see the Jets play the yeah. Eagles. First time the Jets had ever beaten the Eagles in franchise history, which is good to be there. Um, but on a Sunday night when all the games are on, they have something called NFL Red Zone on Sky. And it's just seven hours of continuous American football. So wow. to be fair, I do look forward to that in my week. It's something I think about during the week. I do quite look forward to Sunday nights and watching the American football. Nice. Good, good to have something at least where you can turn your mind and not uh, put the phone down and uh, turn your mind to something it's else. It's also led to, um, as a result, it's led to me getting involved. And it's something that was very abstract to me a few years ago. But watching kind of American TV, it's something that used to crop up. But I'm quite big into American fantasy football now as well. So I've got fantasy football team, fantasy football league. So again, when I'm not working, I tend to be on various news websites about who's fit, who's not fit, who's in the new fantasy team for this weekend. Um, so that tends to to be something that if I try and think about something else, I'll try and think about for a half an hour or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad there's something, mate. Um, put yourself forward 20 years, Ben, final question. Where, you know, we've obviously elections coming up. What were 72% last time, I think, of the, of the vote, really strong. So you've got that to come and what your thoughts are on that. But then I'm just interested in taking it really further forward. 10, 15, 20 years. Do you have something you want, to, a place where you want to be in sort of 15 years, maybe? Um, no, no, I really don't. Um, and I think that's because of the role that I've got now. It's, it's taught me, uh, rightly or wrongly, you can't really plan too far ahead. I know it sounds like a corny answer, Mike, but it is the answer. I mean, my life now ends at the beginning of May, because that's my re-election, right? So either I win or I lose. And depending depending on how that goes, my life will be very different forever. You know, if I do another four years as mayor, that's going to leave me down one path. If I don't, then I don't know what the other path leads to, but it's a very different path. So it's a, it's a weird life of a politician that you can't plan that far ahead. And again, I'm not just saying that. You just, you know, if anybody listening to this looks back at what happened over the last 18 months in politics nationally, we were in a very yeah. different where we were 18 months ago so trying to project forward two three four five years never mind 20 years is, is genuinely impossible so like i say my my whole existence runs up to may 
Um, hopefully I'm here again after May and we can continue with the plans that we've got and there are more plans coming down the line. Um, but beyond that, no, I genuinely wouldn't have a clue, Mike. So if you've got any ideas, I'm more... <laughs> I'm all on questions <laughs> what I need to do with my life. <laughs> I mean, I know you mean it's an interesting challenge. We know where we think we're going to be, we'd like to be in a couple of years' time. But who knows after that? That's part of the excitement, mate, isn't it? You need to have a little bit of... Uh, oh, nice nice branding touch there to have the business brew right at the... Uh, at the end of the conversation, <laughs> excellent stuff. Yeah, cheers. Here we go. Um, yeah, well, that anyway. That that's all part of the fun, is that you never quite know what might be around the next corner. Yeah, uh, and again, it's a very lucky position to be in. Strike quite strangely, even though there's a lot of uncertainty in it, but it means that there is no there is no certainty in life, and so it leads to a level of you know trepidation, but also excitement, right? Because you don't know what's around the corner, and you don't want you don't know what's next. So. It's, it's just a weird life to be involved in, in politics. But like I say, if you don't embrace it, it'll eat you up. And again, it goes back to having good supportive family, not just Rachel, but my whole family who are massively supportive. And it allows you to kind of embrace that uncertainty, that kind of, like I say, that trepidation, that 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 excitement of what might or might not be, um, and just run with it and, and see what happens, which, um, like I say, I think if you look back over the last six, seven years since I've been elected, Mike, that's kind of one of the themes of, of my mayorality is we kind of we go with things you know we take risks we see what happens and yeah. you know we back ourselves because you know who, who never who, who knows what's going to happen and why not give it a go and see what happens and you never 100% know where it's going to work out you know we never we never knew that we were going to buy the airport and save it we've never known that we were going to be able to resolve the major problems at Teesworks and deliver investment but we backed ourselves and we thought why not and you know let's see where this roller coaster takes us really and and I think that's a you know, it's like in, in life, politics is no different to business. You have to be willing to take risk because without risk, there is no reward. And and that's something that we've we've very much embraced over the last six or seven years. Well, listen, but that's been uh, fascinating. I think we, we can talk for hours, of course, about so many different things, but really appreciate you giving up time on uh, what's no doubt another, another busy day. Um, this is the Business Brew podcast from Business IQ. Thank you very much, Ben, and uh, we'll hopefully see you all again soon. Goodbye.